0: Good afternoon, everybody, and Uh, welcome to this afternoon's event. That's a good start. Uh, Where we're going to discuss, we're going to have a conversation um, about the potential impact of Brexit on research and innovation. We have a large panel, but don't worry, they won't be making 20-minute presentations. Um, And we have a smaller audience. The smaller selected audience all have skin in the game, or are experts, or hopefully both. Um, so we hope that this will be a conversation, a discussion, perhaps a debate, um, rather than watching and listening. There are people online. Um, we're trying something new as Bruegel um, to make our events more public instead of uh, inviting people from Brussels and pretending that they're the public. Um, we're extending further out. Um, and the real focus of this Uh, debate is going to be what happens um, with the live stream and with Twitter. So if everything works well, we should be able to move to questions from members of the public, no matter where they may be, um, through Twitter. Let's hope that that goes well. If it doesn't, then please forgive us um, uh, at the beginning. Um, I'm going to let the panel members introduce themselves, and in their introductions, I would like them to address two very simple questions. Um, give us your perspective of, uh, of what's at stake, no matter which side of the negotiations uh, you are on. Um, the Wellcome Trust uh, recently um, made a calculation that every euro spent on research in Europe delivers 11 euros of value. Um, is that your perspective from where you come from? Is that really what we're talking about in terms of what's at stake? Um, And then I'd also like to know, um, as an opening gambit, can we build a proxy for the status quo, no matter what the outcome of Brexit? So we will start on my right with uh, Kurt, because his last name, even though he's called Kurt, his last name is the beginning of the alphabet. So Kurt, you have five minutes to introduce yourself and to answer those two questions.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Matt. And. uh, Apologies for the voice and for the physical condition, but I dragged myself out of bed this morning to come here because Renilda asked me to be on this panel, and so I've done that. But um, I'm not really feeling very good. Um, The League of European Research Universities. Uh, We are a group of 23 research-intensive universities in Europe. Um, And with this group of 23 research-intensive universities, we try to promote on a daily basis the interests of frontier research, education, and innovation at EU level. Uh, In our group of 23 universities, we have five UK universities, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, University College London, Imperial College London, and the University of Edinburgh. So Brexit is for us a very important topic, because certainly at the end of the day when all of this is over and behind us, we absolutely want to be sure that those five universities still can participate in the next uh, framework programme. We had a kind of uh, similar experience in the past. We also have two Swiss members in our group, and you will remember what happened with the Swiss participation in (coughs) Horizon 2020 and Erasmus. Uh, Also there, we have been doing anything that is within our possibilities to make sure that they could re-enter the Horizon 2020 framework programme again. Uh, So the same goes for for Brexit, Uh, it's clear that those five universities for us have to stay on board, but of course in extrapolation of only those five, I think it's absolutely crucial uh, for European universities, for research in Europe, that all UK universities can continue to participate in the next framework programme, but also in the next Erasmus Plus programme and things like that. It's not a question of money in the first place, it's in the first place a question of collaboration, mobility, joint initiatives, bringing the best people, the best students, the best researchers together in order to make sure that at the end of the day uh, we can solve those grand societal challenges uh, which we try to solve through research and through educating the best people to do research. So for us, uh, it's not in the first place an issue of money, but it's in the first place an issue of collaboration. And Matt referred to this Welcome Trust study uh, about the importance of research. Uh, We just presented a week ago here in Brussels also the new uh, economic impact study of the LERU Group, Uh, what is the economic impact of LERU universities on the European economy. And also there we had dazzling figures with regard to uh, gross value added amount of jobs that our activities uh, create and generate. So it's clear that hopefully also the UK leadership will understand that the research and education sector is a very important sector which they have to defend during the negotiations. I'm still not convinced of the fact that they are fully aware of that and that they are really fully going to go for that. So this is a continuous worry uh, for us in the group uh, up until now. Uh, looking at the second question, Matt, uh, what is the alternative? Can we go to a kind of status quo? Well, it's clear that for us, at the end of the day, uh, the UK has to be uh, a country which is associated to the framework programme, uh, regardless how they may call it in the future, uh, because you know that also the word or the notion of being an associate member state to the framework programme is a kind of contaminated notion in the UK. But in one or the other way, we have to make sure uh, that this can be realized. And uh, and as I've just written yesterday also, uh, probably will have seen that, uh, it's clear that also the LAMI group is on that track, uh, namely to open up the next framework program, FP9, uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, Of course, a lot of countries worldwide today can already participate. But of course, if they are too rich, they cannot get any funding out of the program. They have to pay for that themselves. But I think that what the LAMI group said, namely that we have to associate the best and make sure that participation is possible for all, I think that this would be a fantastic track on which we can work in the following months.
2: Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you for me. Uh, I'm David Anshaw and I do European Public Policy, Policy for MSD. Merck Sharp and Dohme, a pharmaceutical company, and as many of people in the room will probably have, will probably know, it's a company which, in the last two weeks, interestingly, has invested in R&D in the United Kingdom, um, which I can assure you has raised a number of eyebrows on the mainland of Europe, um, because I am regularly asked why is it that you're doing what you're doing in London, um, which is an interesting situation to be in. Uh, perhaps at this point, let me just do a little bit of audience participation. How many people in the room are British? Okay, four or five. Are you still British or have you become Belgian yet? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I became Belgian before the referendum, which is why I ask. Okay. Okay. Um, Now, clearly, I mean, Matt's first question, why why is this important? Obviously, um, R&D policy is massively important in the context of Brexit. And if you're a pharmaceutical company or if you're in any way engaged in, in life sciences research, then Brexit has major implications for the future of science policy, life sciences research policy, across the European continent and wider. So I think the first part of the question is very easily answered. That, that obviously uh, this is important. It's a major tragedy. Everybody says it's a tragedy. We all I think is there anybody in the room that disagrees that it's a tragedy? Of course not. Um, however, the second part of the question is, is more the second question is much more challenging. Um, and this is where I might be a little bit unorthodox and, and provoke a little bit. Because I think the question is worth asking. Um, What is research and innovation policy for and I'll come back to the LAMI report as well in a minute Um, The LAMI report it says that the United United Kingdom and the European Union should should have Cooperation and research cooperation based on mutual investment now, of course that is is true I think we we absolutely agree that that mutual investment is is massively important But I think it's important to also look at what does the word investment mean? Um, because I think we need to look at what does the European Union want in terms of research policy and what might the United Kingdom want. Now, a couple of weeks ago or a month or so ago, Barnier asked a question about the future direction that the United Kingdom might take. Well, if we're looking at this in a strategic sense 10 years from now, 20 years from now, are we really all convinced that the United Kingdom will move in a direction which is aligned with the European Union? And I asked the question, i put it out there just at the beginning because it's the subject I think that we're all going to end up talking about. And the Lammy report, yes, does talk about an openness of European Union research and innovation policy, which is good. But on the other hand, it also articulates the concept of defending our collective interests. And our collective interests as Europeans are about promoting competitiveness, which has always been an objective of European research policy, Um, It's about the strategic investment, it's about the economic necessity, and it's about the social obligations that flow from research and innovation policy. And I do ask the question whether, from what I see at the moment as as an ex-British person, are the Brits going to be moving in the same direction as the rest of the EU is moving in 10 to 15 years from now? And and I'm not at all convinced. Um, As a very simple um, anecdote or question, if, for those who question my uh, worries and cynicism about the United Kingdom, just read the Daily Telegraph occasionally. And what you read is astounding. And that's before you start reading an even bigger circulation newspaper, the, the Daily Mail, which is, both of them today represent the views of the British government. And, and I ask those people that unquestionably want this future relationship to be as open and as, as welcoming as, as in the past, just look at the way that British politics are going. And I'm not convinced that strategically in the future, we as Europeans are going to be wanting that close cooperation with, with a, a third country, which is going off in another direction. Final point, which is less provocative, Of course, research and innovation policy is about collaboration. Of course, it's about researchers working with each other across frontiers. And I have absolutely no question about that whatsoever. And we should do all we possibly can to promote that. So somehow we need to separate the interests of the research community, the interests of the universities, from the the political positioning and the articulation of its interests by the British government. And that's going to be the challenge. That
0: will be a challenge. Um, The question about alignment, that's something I think we should... I'll discuss um, later after you've introduced yourselves, but is there a competitive advantage that the UK might gain from, from not working with its European partners or breaking off? Um, but before we do that, and I won't ask you, David, if we should interpret your investment in the United Kingdom as, uh, um, as representative of anything, um, I, I deliberately won't ask that. Richard, please introduce yourself. Thank you.
3: I'm Richard Hudson. I'm the editor-in-chief of a company called Science Business, a news company uh, focused on science and technology based in Brussels. I've been following, (coughs) as a journalist, first at the Wall Street Journal, now with my own company, science and technology policy in Europe since 1984. I've seen this research and innovation, as I call it now, uh, collaboration grow from these little tiny shoots here, uh, uh, that began here in Brussels and were strongly backed by the u k government at the, of the time into a massive tree I don't know whether you believe the number of a multiple of eleven to one, I shall leave that to our colleague Rein Hilda. Uh, there are many do be questions about the about that analysis but there isn't any question that whatever number you put on it the value of collaborative research and innovation for all of the EU members and the world has been and continues to be enormous what's at stake the health of 500 million people to start with I mean, we're, you know, the UK is the powerhouse, what the powerhouse one would say, for biomedical research in Europe. If disaster, I don't think this will happen, if by disaster it were to be cut off from the continent, uh, it would cripple drug development in for Europe and for the world. That's why I'm sure it's not going to happen that way. But that's just a small indication. And why is that important? I I mean, you know, there are 30 million people in Europe who have muscular dystrophy or some kind of um, mitochondrial disease, a cluster of lots, lots of specific illnesses that affect many small populations. You can't do research on all of those at once as a single country, not even the U.S., as large it is as it is, can do that. You have to pull together and do it together, and that's and so that's simply small populations about why it matters. Uh, you know, individual groups, but then spread spread the story around to energy, to climate, to transport, to aerospace, to defense. I mean, and you see this. There is scale in working together, uh, which can't be lost. Uh, the, I mean, the, the one personal point that I would make, uh, as you can tell from my accent, I am an American. I've tried to lose that accent in 35 years, but not entirely. But why do I care? My grandfather and father both fought in wars that began in Europe. I do not want my kids to have that happen. So I'm, I, I get a bit emotional on this point. But it's really important. So we are talking about research, but with what has happened with, with the relations between the UK and Europe, it's playing with dynamite. Just as I would say my own, well, my, the US government is doing at the moment as well. So anyway, that, that, that's,
0: that's why we care on, on this. So what the US government is doing as a whole... Another conversation, which maybe we'll invite you for. Um, uh, to our next panellist, um, he's from Switzerland, so he knows why he's here, but maybe he can explain to you what he does and answer the two questions.
4: Well, I'm the associate, We're here in the room, actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm Martin Muller, I'm uh, co-heading the Swiss Contact Office for Education Research Innovation, which is called Swisscore. We are based in Brussels, and we are co funded by the State Secretary for Education Research Innovation, so the Swiss government, the Swiss National Science Foundation, our research council, and uh, InnoSwiss, our national innovation agency. We, uh, I must maybe be clear, we are not uh, government representatives, so we we are not diplomats, so I do not speak here as the official voice of the Swiss government, Um, but we have the function mostly to represent our stakeholders and try to liaise (coughs) with the European institutions, with the Brussels ecosystems, when it comes to research, innovation, and education programs and policies. Of course, I'm here because we had uh, our own little uh, Brexit in the field of research and innovation. Uh, we had in 2014 uh, a big referendum, a mass immigration uh, initiative that was accepted by the Swiss population. And uh, uh, this was a disaster uh, because in the week that followed the results of referendum, we were uh, excluded from Horizon 2020 and Erasmus Plus. We were on the verge of concluding our negotiations, but we directly saw uh, the exclusion of those programs that were so important for us. It was a disaster, uh, and we, we can see that also that the stakeholders quickly realized the importance of Horizon 2020 and Erasmus Plus for Switzerland because we had a big mobilization of, uh, of our universities, of our companies, um, of all our stakeholders in this field of education, research, innovation, and uh, this mobilization was so strong uh, that we could find a solution after three years of uh, of internal discussions, because I think it was not a Swiss-EU discussions the, the, the point was clear. But we had uh, an internal debate about how we could implement this immigration law so that it respects the free uh, circulation of, of, of persons. We're also uh, lucky in the sense that we quickly could strike uh, an agreement with the commission. It was a temporary association agreement that allowed us access to the first pillar of Horizon 2020. And uh, if you know well Horizon 2020, the first pillar is uh, composed by all these Instruments that are a mono beneficiary where you cannot access if you are a third country I speak about the European Research Council of course the Marie oskar Curie actions But also the research infrastructure part of Horizon 2020 and those elements very vital for our science, uh, science base in Switzerland Because uh, I think the reaction was uh, so quick I think we are back in this first period of Horizon 2020 in September already. I think the damage on our science committee was limited. Uh, Of course, we couldn't participate to a couple of calls. Of course, we saw our participation drop when it came to consortia, but at least we could maintain our standing uh, over the three years where the discussions uh, internally and with the EU were taking place in order to find a solution to to this uh, mass immigration referendum. The most important thing for us uh, when we wanted to participate to Horizon 2020 was not, uh, of course, only the funding, but of course, I think we already mentioned, the collaborative aspects. Uh, It was to uh, be still allowed to participate in this uh, Champions League for research, the European Research Council. It was also to be uh, still able to have a voice when it comes to formulation of European Research Innovation Policy. I think even though you're not an EU member state, you are still able to contribute to different uh, expert groups, program committees, ERAC and others, and you're still able to shape uh, in the way European Research Innovation Policy is made. That's why being quickly back at the at the at the discussion table was so important for us. When you come to your uh, questions about why uh, what would happen if the UK would not be able to participate in 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 uh, in, in Horizon 2020 FP9, and what is my view as a Swiss on that? Well, of course we see that as a disaster because. Uh, the UK is participating and is very strong in those programmes that are very also important for us. I speak about the European Research Council, for example, where if you look at the beneficiaries, the UK universities are the top positions. What would the European Research Council mean if you uh, if you remove the uh, British participants from 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 this uh, from this? Uh, from this uh, competition. I speak about research infrastructures, where the UK hosts a lot of research infrastructures, and also we need to have access to those research infrastructures. So I think it's quite clear if the UK now is not able to participate in this program, then we have an impoverishment of uh, the future uh, research uh, collaboration in Europe. Whether we would like a status quo or not, I think what we, would, uh, uh, what we wouldn't like to see from the perspective of Switzerland is that we see now uh, a divergence between what the UK is doing and what the EU is doing. I think we, for us, the most uh, important thing is a well functioning European research area where you know, knowledge, researchers, and collaboration uh, can happen on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a good basis. And uh, we, we are very much to lose if now we see that the EU is, is going in one direction with the framework programs and the UK is, is, uh, is diverging also when the EU and try to set up its own kind of parallel uh, arrangements. What I, what I take from the discussions that took place in Brussels between Theresa May and Jean-Claude uh, uh, Juncker last week, I have the feeling that, at least in the joint report that was put on the table, uh, the intention is there for the UK to associate uh, maybe uh, at the legislature to FP9. I see that as a, good, you know, as a good step, in a good direction, that we also try to come to a, to a common research area where the UK, the EU and the other associated countries can you know, collaborate on, a, on, a, on an equal basis.
0: The intention is there, and I In, mean, I'm I'm going to be a little bit cynical as a British person looking at Brexit. Um, based on our unique and special relationship with the EU over so many years, our intention, it seems, as British people, is to maintain all the benefits but stop paying for them. So I, I, I would be sceptical about uh, the fact that the British government intends to uh, try to keep the status quo without paying. Um, I apologize for that. Uh, um, uh, we, we move on to, to, um, uh, to Christian. Thank
5: you very much. Matt, I'm Christian Achinski from the Austrian Ministry of Science, Research, and Economy. Um, and there I'm in charge of EU and OECD research policy. Um, I'm also the co-chair of a European committee called IRAQ, um, together with the, with the uh, Commission Director General. Um, And of course, like my Swiss colleague at the beginning, I have to make a disclaimer that I do not represent here the official position neither of the EU nor nor of of my government. But of course, I can speak on the basis of my experience and my expertise, but it's at the end my personal um, interventions and views that I bring forward. Um, What is at stake, from my point of view, when we look at the EU side, of course, you can, you can easily uh, measure it. It's a financial loss of around 10 billion euro for the next framework programme period. Um, of course, depending on how big the cake is for FP9 and, and how do you calculate the GDP contribution from the UK, but let's say roughly 10 billion. So this is a lot of money. Um, and therefore, of course, the EU side has to have an interest somehow to deal with that and to avoid, let's say, uh, the worst. Um, but when we look at these, at the UK, of course, I mean, and I just looked up the figures, the latest figures on, on the UK participation in Horizon 2020, it's about, I think, uh, more than 8,000 UK participations so far in Horizon 2020. And that really means that a big chunk of the most talented and, and excellent people and institutions in the UK are heavily involved in, in the framework program. Also looked up the top ten institutions, and I somehow it looked a little bit like the list of universities that are covered by you quotes uh, uh, in, in Lero So of course it's very important from the side of the UK to, to stay involved in, in that game. Um, so far, the UK gained more than €4 billion under Horizon 2020. So it is one of these areas where for the UK uh, this is a real uh, win-win situation. The, The research budget is something where they get more out of it than they pay into it. So this is financially also a very good deal for the UK so far. But beyond all these financial aspects, of course, and I think some of the colleagues mentioned that already, it's also and perhaps even more about... The shared knowledge, the networks, the patterns of collaborations that built up over decades that are at risk uh, or even, or at least become more difficult in the future. Also, in the circles where I normally move around, in the policy making uh, circles, there is a lot at stake because, as also someone already said before, the UK has always been a promoter of excellence and the promoter of, of, of European collaboration and research. And, and we would terribly miss this voice huh, in the concert of European policymakers. And, and therefore, again, I think it's for both the EU and the UK, uh, a lot that is at stake. Now, to your second question, um, if you could somehow think about a future where basically nothing changes. I mean, I would, I would in the first place, respect the democratic decision of of the UK people. This is something that I just take as a given at this point from outside. Um, So, And I think if I don't misread the referendum in the UK, people do not want to have just a continuation of the status quo, so something has to change. Now the question is what? And here I think is the challenge for us in our policy field that we are part of a much bigger conversation, much bigger picture. And uh, I'm not sure to what extent our policy field, research innovation, is able to drive this debate in one or the other direction. I sometimes have the impression that there are other aspects that uh, carry more weight in this debate, and therefore I'm not very optimistic. Still, I think it's important for everyone who is involved, no matter if in the UK or on the continent, uh, to raise their voice and bring forward the good arguments in favour of research and and innovation and the role that that our policy field field plays, potentially as even a bridge uh, in these for sure very difficult uh, negotiations over the next one and a half years.
0: So a little bit of a (laughs) sceptical approach to Your ability and our ability to influence the negotiating strategy and to say this is something that should be prioritized. I hope that today we're helping to change that. Reinhilde, please introduce yourself.
6: So uh, I'm an academic scholar working on uh, the economics of science and innovation with a particular focus on on innovation policy at the EU level. Um, I'm also at the scientific uh, council of the ERC, which will probably regularly pop up in my uh, intervention. But like all the others, I'm representing myself and nobody <laughs> nobody else. I'm also not representing Brug- <laughs> you. So um, in terms of, of, of what's at stake, well, uh, like you already mentioned, what's basically at stake is this uh, return, social return we get from investing in science and innovation, so this 1 to 11 uh, ratio uh, here. Is 11, is that the, 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 the number we, we can uh, imagine? Well, w- what's clear is that the returns will be are substantial. Uh, whether it's 11, it's very important to identify that these returns will be long term. Uh, and with a lot with a big confidence interval around uh, numbers here, so there's lots of uncertainty of what will actually come out. And it also identifies that it really depends on a lot of conditions whether we get the optimal social returns from our investments in research. And a very important condition for getting returns out of that is to have a single, an, an integrated market for, uh, for uh, innovation uh, here. And so that's why if we can pull uh, resources uh, and have a, a, a European research area and beyond, but then we will actually be getting, with a higher probability, much bigger returns from any investments we will mm. be making in science and innovation. So that's really what's at, what's at stake. But that also makes the point that, for me, it's way more than just pooling resources. Of course, that's important because pooling resources will allow for more focus on excellence, more specialisation here, but it goes beyond that. It's, it's also the whole single market, I think, which is very important. Um, so it's all the, all the, the four freedoms which, which matter here too. It's the mobility of, of talent, of skills, but also the mobility of innovative goods and services uh, to flow around the mobility of financing for innovation, and and, uh, also uh, the the, the ideas itself that can be traded here. So that's for me why we also need to broaden up the discussion. It's not just what will happen to the research part uh, here, but also the extent to which the UK stays involved with the other uh, dimensions of the single market uh, as well. Um, And then in terms of um, (coughs) the status quo, uh, how can we assure the status quo? Actually I'd like to be a bit more ambitious. (laughs) Maybe we can actually use the whole discussion on Brexit to move beyond the status quo and to see whether we can do even better rethinking how we should actually think about our um, common pooling of, of resources on research here. And uh, I fully are aligned with what Kurt was saying, that we should perhaps use this also as an opportunity to think more about how we should open up our policies uh, with respect to research and and innovation uh, at a global uh, level here, because we know that research and innovation is basically a global uh, global landscape here. Um, Can we not also uh, use this now as an opportunity to make our uh, research policies and innovation policies much more open uh, for uh, non-EU here, whether it's the UK but also the US or, uh, or other uh, emerging markets uh, here. Uh, I think it's very important to try to see whether we can get um, more out of our international uh, collaboration.
0: Thank you. So, I would like to first uh, concentrate on the framework programmes. And we have a question from Twitter, which should be easy for you to answer, um, from Joseph Ballard. Is there political appetite, both in the UK and the EU, um, for the for the UK to remain in the framework programmes um, after Horizon 2020, um, post-Brexit? So, we already, well, we all have to um, repeat... Uh, um, uh, the Brexit mantras, and this week's Brexit mantra is nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So bearing in mind that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, um, uh, we do know that the UK is going to remain in Horizon 2020. Um, So the question is, is there a political will for the UK to be able to remain in FP9? Um, And would it be as an associated member? Perhaps we'll start with you, Ryan Hilda.
6: We assume, like we do in economics always, so that uh, our economic agents are rational. <laughs> <laughs> we <definitely> could also... <laughs> no? I <laughs> don't know whether that holds for politicians. <laughs> but then it's very clear that, I mean, the, for, for the UK perspective, currently it's getting way more return out of its investments here, so why should it not be willing to, to, uh, to be aligned on, on, on the next uh, framework program uh, here? Um, So it's pretty easy to find uh, a room where their contributions would be sufficiently uh, compensated by the (coughs) benefits they get out of this without us losing uh, here. So there is plenty of win-win room for for, uh, positive uh, association uh, here. So again, everything is always under the assumption of any kind of rationality here. Um, of course, you could always argue from the UK perspective. We could spend that amount of money <coughs> way better if we were just allocated within the UK. But here, I would like actually to to return to the Swiss example here, because in the short period when you were outside uh, the the framework program, you tried to organize yourself, for instance, replicating a bit the ERC model, but. And, and it was not about the money because, of course, <laughs> you had the money to do that here, but it was way less effective to, to select uh, within a smaller group of only Swiss proposals, the excellence and whatever. To f- and, and even the scientists were less incentivated to submit to these kind of, of proposals here. So I think it really, uh, there is so much room for, um, for a positive uh, deal on this, but requires long rationality. <laughs>
0: Is the the rationality there with the EU27? Your personal viewpoint, of course, not that of any government.
5: Before answering that, I really would like to compare a little bit as far as I see it. I think that the appetite is there for both sides. But uh, I see quite strong, uh, let's say signals from the UK government side that they explicitly would, would like to continue to collaborate in, under the future framework programme. So that was, has been made explicit at various occasions. Also in the, in the joint report you can clearly see that this interest uh, in, in, in somewhat uh, staying in, in, in several or in some of the EU sectoral policy programmes. Now, that, of course, brings us from the U side to the point of, okay, does the UK aim for cherry picking? Back to the big picture. So if if the UK is not willing to somehow make a comprehensive deal, but just want to go for those areas where they think they benefit most, of course, then it would start beginning look like this win-lose situation. So the UK just gets in where it wins, and where it would lose, the, the EU should take care of it. Um, and that probably will not work perfectly well. Um, and in addition, if you look at within the framework programme patterns, you can see that there, for some countries there might be an argument even to say, oh, well, perhaps we're better off without the UK, because, uh, as we said before, the UK gets more money out of the framework programme than it pays into it. So um, it's a net beneficiary of the EU budget in in research. So if you take the EU out, so theoretically, there is money left for the rest. Uh, Secondly, uh, when you look at the participation patterns of the UK participants and institutions, you see that there is a very strong focus on the first pillar of Horizon 2020, on the excellence pillar. Uh, the UK gets more than 20% of all ESE grants. And these, of course, are grants that do not depend on collaborative projects. So there is no other member state that is affected if the UK is not there anymore. So for the UK, it's a bit of a dangerous game when you really look into the framework programme because there, the way how so far the UK participated gives some countries perhaps the idea, I think the wrong idea, because overall, I think that the benefits are much stronger to have the UK within. But for some, they could make the argument that okay, we can even live without the UK. Okay,
0: a dissenting view. Um, Martin, do you think uh, do you think that there is a political appetite on the EU side and the UK side to to allow the UK to Act like Switzerland in future framework programs and and, and and as an associate member would you would you welcome another one? Well
4: of course we would welcome the UK as another associated member. Uh, because as I said before, being an associated member to the framework program will give you more or less the same right and obligation as a member state to participate in the program. So we wouldn't uh, very much lose out. And as you said, the UK all, was always a strong uh, supporter of excellence uh, of this collaborative uh, project of fundamental research as well, but we also have, the, have the, same, uh, the same interests. On, th- on the questions about the, whether the political situation would allow to uh, to have deal uh, with the UK in the field of research and innovation, maybe here I, co- I can go back to my perspective as as Swiss and what happened uh, to us. Well, of course, uh, we are very much surprised by the result of the referendum. We didn't expect that so quickly we would see these direct measures. And when we discussed to our friends within the community, the research innovation community, but also within the commission, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, having Switzerland in Horizon 2020 would be a win-win. It was no doubt that uh, if Swiss you know, scholars could participate in the ERC, for example, this would also be good for the ERC because the competition would be uh, stronger at European level and you could fund more excellent uh, research. So this was, this was clear <coughs> by all. But, but the problem was not to convince the research innovation people. So the problem was that we had an issue with one of the core principles of the EU, which is the free movement of persons. And as long as this was not solved at a very political level, at the top level of the European Commission, for example, then well, the door would not, have, would not open uh, for us. And I suspect the same would happen with the UK. Uh, I think in the joint report, uh, I think the UK stated that, of course, they would like to participate in FP9. FP9, Of course, because it's mutually beneficial for the UK and and the EU. But the decision will not be taken by the research innovation people. It's it's part of a more, uh, of a bigger debate that uh, that touches all, all areas between the UK and EU collaboration. As soon as the core issues of the Brexit haven't been solved, there won't be a possibility to participate for the UK in the in the framework program
0: and I, 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 I appreciate that point, but you did earlier say that it was the mobilization of research organizations and companies in Switzerland which was able to change the political economy um, so that you could join the, the program do you, do you do you think that would work in this situation do you do you see companies and universities already um, uh, campaigning to 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 have this as a really important part of the of the negotiations.
4: In the UK, yeah, I see that all the time. Uh, we have a lot of discussion with organisations such as uh, universities UK, or uh, the Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, and they're all very active in trying to uh, persuade the government in London, but also the European Union to uh, to, to to find kind of a deal which would allow the UK and the EU to participate or the UK to participate in this EU program for research innovation. So this is a very strong mobilisation in there. But the problem is this is, I think all sectors are mobilising for their interests. I think the companies are mobilising also for, uh, well, their uh, interests to stay in the single markets. Uh, the, the financial sector also is very active. And at the end, it's a big bargain that uh, the British government needs to strike with all the different uh, stakeholders that they have. Richard,
0: so as a, as an, as you can't escape being an American, but you're an American who's been in Europe. Do you see the political will on both sides to...? Yeah, sure. Of course, of course there's the
3: political desire for it. The problem is the immutable red line that the EU drew with Switzerland. No free movement, no full participation. Right. And, and I mean, look, they, how can you make it more clear than that? I, it would be an extraordinary Political climb down for the EU member states to to vary from that line So and so far the UK government doesn't sound like it's I will who knows but it, it doesn't sound like it's like it's negotiable on their side either That was what part of the the referendum was about so um, this we are You know on this issue as on so many others. I think there is a stalemate for which new, more creative solutions are going to have to be found um, the what reinhilde one one point you made on on the the, the popular view the in the u k the problem is and, and david i'm sure you know more about this than I do, but the problem is that in most countries, but especially in the u k those who do science those who are running universities are seen as part of the elite. And again, the, you know, the most famous quote from the entire referendum campaign, aside from the 350 million pounds, was, uh, we, are all, we have all had enough of experts. So there is absolutely no way that politically there's going to be any mileage for, sing- for special pleading on behalf of this sector, I mean, it's entirely as you have both said. It's going to be part of a bigger deal, and there'll be trade-offs that come as a result. I mean, I do have some some ideas on what these creative solutions could be, but uh, we can get to those whenever you like.
2: David,
0: your take on this? Uh,
2: I wish we were all rational and... and now, and we wouldn't be having this discussion. But clearly, that that doesn't apply. Um, okay the UK in the European Union would be the win-win solution and we're not in that situation anymore. Um, But coming back to the life sciences strategy, let me just make a few points, but one of them about the life sciences strategy, or a life sciences strategy. Um, In the case of life sciences, I think, and Reynolds has touched on this already a little bit, I think there's an interesting connection with other things which are important to generating um, innovation and they're not to do with with research and collaborations and, and innovation alone they're also to do with regulatory systems with in the case of pharmaceutical products with clinical trials with intellectual property rights not least at all uh, for example and all of this is part of a life sciences strategy and and I do ask the question I, I wonder if whether actually find trying to find opportunities out of brexit heaven above but anyway trying to find opportunities out of brexit whether this gives the 27 the the chance the motivation the opportunity to to craft a real life sciences strategy um, which it will need going forward as we've heard Uh, the uk stands par ex is the par excellence example of a member state with superb universities with tremendous investment in life sciences with everything that you would like in in terms of r d Um, and it's about to be um, amputated In that situation, um, going forward, I do think there may well be the opportunity for the Commission to transform European R&D policy, at least in the life sciences sector, to move forward. Because, not least, because the regulatory, the IP, um, and everything else that goes in in with life sciences is part of community competence, part of European Union competency. So it sort of goes together. The point has already been made about cherry picking and cakes and eating them. Um, I expect there will be a lot of cherry picking and a lot of cakes to be eaten. And again, that tends to underline my position, uh, which is I think that the interests of the European Union are to protect its own interests first and to to allow the UK to take part um, in terms that will benefit the rest of the European continent and the rest of the globe. And we need to be very careful about making sure that the UK doesn't only benefit itself. If I sound like Angela Merkel, maybe I will remind you that she said we need to learn to stand on our own feet. And I think standing on our own feet applies very much in the case of life sciences going forward. And finally, um, I think an interesting um, exercise is to look through the British government's life sciences strategy and the sector deal. The life sciences strategy mentions Europe a couple of times in terms of staying within the IMI, and it is literally a couple of times, no more. There's a lot of references to to my company investing in the UK and spinning that investment, but there is very, very little in terms of the British government's interest in staying uh, in, in European collaborative research, at least via the life sciences strategy. And that certainly surprised me Because I'd have thought that that interest should be articulated in something as important as the life sciences strategy. And finally, if you look at the sector deal that was announced only last week, the word Europe doesn't appear at all. So I question the commitment, again, of of the British government to a genuine cooperation for the benefit of of European science or, or global science. I fear a lot of cherry picking and a lot of having their cake and eating it. Sorry. <laughs>
0: um, no, I think you're. I I think you're. You're. You're being realistic. I. I'm. Yeah. I'm actually surprised. I. I. What we're hearing here um, is that um, even though this is an important sector, um, it's going to be down to the political economy. Um, that even if we mobilise, um, in the Swiss case, it was quite different because something was taken away. And, and that was very clear what was taken away, and, and companies and, and research institutions um, wanted it back. I'm actually surprised to hear that, that, that for many of you, you don't think that there is the kind of political will that A would prioritise the sector and B would make it work. And, and can you offer us some hope, Kurt?
1: <laughs> I want to stay in a realistic approach, the one that I'm hearing here on my left-hand side also. So, so hope is not something that, that we have to take into account, I would say, in these kinds of negotiations. So, but if I look at the university sector on both sides of the channel, I see that in continental Europe, there is a huge desire to continue to collaborate with UK universities. So huge demand on that side. If I speak with the Russell Group at Universities UK, with all the other uh, sector organisations that you have in the UK, you have the same desire. Everybody wants to stay uh, in the game. And obviously we now, Uh, take a lot of hope, if we still stay with this word, we take a lot of hope from this one sentence which is now included in last Friday's agreement, where the UK (laughs) is saying, uh, without mentioning the word or the sector of research, innovation or education, but that they are willing to pay into the budget of the EU uh, for a number of programmes that the EU would launch after after Brexit. But it's clear that, uh, and and it has been mentioned several times, no cherry-picking, no deal on research if there is no deal on everything else. So so these are the two premises that we have to keep in mind. But even if we get the UK in a kind of situation of an associate member state to the framework program, that will mean for the UK the use of contracts imposed by the European Commission. This will impose recognition of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in the research, education, and innovation field this will lead to the fact that they will have to comply with policy in research innovation and education which is developed by the 27 others and were in the past they were a major contributor on policy development not only on the framework and the success on the framework but if you look at uh, animal use if you look at research integrity the EU's policy has been inspired by domestic policy initiatives in the UK so in, in Post Brexit situation, this will all not be relevant anymore. They will have to accept what the 27 others decide and they will have to comply with that. So, so this leads to a situation where the acquis communautaire, as we call it, uh, and, and as David also referred already to, on animal testing, on clinical trials, on copyright, on general data protection, and things like that, don't expect. The EU, I would say, looking at the EU, don't expect that the EU is going to change its policy with one millimeter to accommodate the UK. So if the UK decides, and perhaps politically, this is going to be the most difficult thing, if the UK decides we want to be associated to the framework program, that they also politically and policy-wise will have to be aware of the fact that they will have to accept this whole set of other rules which are not specifically research policy rules, but which are general rules of the EU game. Now, on the other hand, uh, to to stay a little bit optimistic, I would say that if you look at what happened on Friday, uh, I have said this is a full capitulation by the UK. They have given up every red line that they pulled out over the past few months. Full capitulation and willingness, uh, kindness, gentleman behavior I would say from the side of the EU to allow that the Irish can was kicked down the road in order to be sure that last Friday there was an agreement and that they could move on to the second phase of the negotiations because as you know it's incredible if you read this document which is what is in fact said about the Irish situation. Bottom line is that the UK accepts if we cannot solve it ourselves we will go for full alignment with the EU, and all of that is now suddenly all very acceptable in the UK. So, so coming back to the word that you mentioned, there is still hope, I would say. If the UK is also willing in phase two, and in particular for research, innovation, and education, to go to full capitulation, then of course, I think that we can be hopeful for future collaboration. And the way they behave in phase one uh, probably can, make it quite realistic that they will go for full capitalization, if you look what happened over the weekend in the UK, with this Mr. David Davis then just questioning in the most foolish way, what is now the value of the document that they agreed upon on Friday? If you see that the reaction today of the EU27 is already, okay, you doubt what is the legal value? Well, you better make sure that you put it into writing in a legal way, otherwise we are not even going to start or to continue negotiations on trade policy. So so politically, I think that in the academic world in the UK, everybody is on board, and there is huge, uh, of course, annoyance and disappointment about the way the political class is behaving. But if this political class is going to stay there for the next two years, well then obviously, uh, a lot lot of, uh, I would say, EU power play is going to come into the game. eh? Because the EU is not going to allow any millimeter of flexibility, I would say.
0: Well, Kurt, while I am very tempted to go down this line of conversation, and to... I, I think we shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> well, <no. laughs> um, and, we, and, and we should all... Well, the, I don't want to go down the conversation of commenting on how well or how badly either side of the negotiations are going, and I... I um, and, and also, you know, there is an opt-out clause. A member of the cabinet has told everybody in the UK that if they're not happy with the Brexit deal, whatever it turns out to be, then next time we have an election, we can elect another government who will change the Brexit deal. <laughs> <laughs> so... But this,
1: but this comes down so, get to the fact... A political class with whom we have to negotiate now the next two years still but which has proven internally to be completely unreliable, <laughs> lying to its own population now for almost two years, not willing to sketch the legal and the correct environment in which all of this has
2: to take place. I think the lying started yeah. in 1973. <laughs> 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 and, it, and it's all parties. It's the entire political class.
5: Make, this I think what would be good as a next step Is if the UK government could make very clear what it really means actually, by on the one hand, having all these red lines that you just described, but on the other hand, telling Europe that they want to have a very, very special relationship that goes beyond any other relation that exists in the world, which in a way is is very promising, but but we need to understand what that means. And that brings Perhaps even a danger of that, uh, and here I'm, I'm happy that, that we have a colleague from Switzerland here, because what we hear already is that some of the currently associated countries tell Europe, be careful not to offer the UK any better deal than what we received in the past. So, so to have all these very special relations, this, this little bit of cloudy uh, talk, Positive cloudy talk needs to be translated within the next couple of weeks, I would say, into very concrete proposals so that the EU side could also, in its own, let's say, negotiation directive, correspond to that level yeah, and, and prepare a deal that, on the other hand, does not endanger the rest of the agreements that the EU has with other partners.
0: So let, let,
6: me, let me go back to.
5: Day, okay, sorry. <laughs> right here,
6: yeah, perhaps one way out of all this uncertainty about what the position of the UK government would be and how difficult it is to predict irrationality, <laughs> you I think it's also important for the EU to think more about what policy does it want to develop in terms of the future um, and particularly an EU policy for stimulating innovation that would be open beyond the EU member states here and have a positive relationship outside the EU outside the EU, here not just with the UK, that's just one of the partners uh, here, but more generally, how open do we want to develop our EU policy here, uh, rather than just waiting until the reaction that we get from the UK here, we should develop proactively a strategy of how we want to go ahead with uh, our innovation policy that is taking into account way much more that open dimension. Now. So.
0: Having commented on that, I have to go back to Kurt because you have a very particular position. You think FP9 <coughs> should be uh, should be opened up even wider. Perhaps well, you could.
1: Uh, in, in the paper that we did on, on FP9, we already launched this idea of opening up the framework program much more than it is today. Because, as you probably all know, uh, Horizon 2020 is not so successful if it comes down to international collaboration eh, because of. The fact, of course, that the BRIC countries became too rich now and have to pay for themselves and things like that, but it's clear that the next framework program will need a new international boost. And and I think that the idea that we launched in our FP9 paper was was picked up by the LAMI group where they say, uh, association by the best and participation by all going hand in hand, of course, with financial input then by those countries into uh, the framework program. And, And I fully agree with what Renilde says, we don't have to take uh, a different approach on the framework program, just alone to accommodate the UK, but we have to make sure that uh, if we want to improve the framework program, and on the point of internationalization, we certainly have to do that, let's develop a policy which brings on board countries like Canada, like Australia, uh, the US still of course has their own legal issues vis-a-vis the EU, so perhaps let's forget about them for the moment, uh, but, but if we then can develop a policy bringing on board the strongest countries. And at the same time, that helps us in solving the specific new situation of the UK. That would be great. We would have more interesting <coughs> countries or, or, uh, in the game. We would have more money in the game because they all will have to pay into the game. Um, at the same time, and I go back to what Christian said, I want to, to, to raise a point of caution also here. Uh, Christiana is very right in saying that already now a number of associated countries are clearly saying here down the road in Brussels, it's impossible that the UK will get a better status as associate country than some of the present countries already have. And you know that in her, or in the paper that the UK government did on research and innovation, that paper where they didn't even mention how successful they were on on ERC grants, So, but in that paper they said we want to have a status which is better than the status of any other country with whom the EU is of course collaborating. Well, obviously those statuses are quite limited. It is or being a member state, and seemingly they don't want to do that anymore, or it is to be an EFTA country, eh? but Theresa May has ruled herself out already twice very explicitly that they want to go down that track. And thirdly, it's becoming, eh, but perhaps they have a certain pride that they don't want to give in for that. They can become a neighborhood country. Eh, and that and, and and that, of course, and that, of course, if all of that is not acceptable for them, again, that brings me to my point. They also will have to do a significant amount of water in the wine, and it's not to be expected by them that the EU is just going to say. Well, we will make an exception for the research policy. Uh, We give a specific status on researchers in Europe, (laughs) and we do all of that to accommodate the UK. That would be wrong, and that certainly would be opposed by a lot of the present member states. Mm. So coming back to what Renaud said, we have to look for a solution which improves the policy globally, and accommodates the situation of the UK in particular. Richard, do you want to
3: respond? I I agree
1: with you, Kurt, uh,
3: and Ryan Hilda, that there's this marvellous opportunity for rethinking the international participation and framework. The problem is, um, look at the US case study, as a case study of what has happened or not happened. Uh, There... There's the problem of money. I mean, if if you bring in a a third country on that basis, then the government in that country has to be willing to let money kind of leak out from its own shores into foreigners, you know? That's always been impossible, almost impossible for the US Congress to accept. This from the largest science power in the world. Uh, The second problem is um, legal. Uh, you know, the intellectual property situation in the Framework Program, the Horizon 2020. Um, for a while, the U.S. State Department was even advising U.S. Un- researchers not to participate while they were arguing with the EU about this. And so if, it, if it's difficult... For... Yeah, well, but if... Well, exactly, okay, yes. But that simply indicates it's a big problem. I, I, a suggestion... The, uh, an alternate suggestion I have that I, I think, by the way, it's the result will be kind of a muddle of all of these possibilities, but it's Brussels. But but you know, <laughs> but, Yeah, thing. okay. Yeah. But, but part of this muddle, I think, is going to be something that President Macron has been talking about lately. Not in the specifics, but in the general. Really interesting thing. In the, since September, he's proposed two different ways in which you could have this kind of intergovernmental Mm -hmm. Relations on science. One is this, you know, agency for disruptive innovation, which would be uh, a coalition of the willing. Those countries that want to do it would do it. They put money into it together, and those who didn't wouldn't. So that's ideal for the UK and the US if they wanted to get involved. Not well, you know, I mean, what is the model for this? It's CERN. You're telling me that that the EU hasn't benefited from CERN? Of course it has.
1: You know. example of the innovation agency, it's clear that Macron took the idea of Moydage and ran with it and now suddenly comes Whoa. up with, instead of an EU agency, or at least an EU institution for that, it's now becoming, in the terminology of Macron, an intergovernmental setup where the yeah, EU, of course, is not going to have the control that right. they would have when exactly. it was an EU initiative. So that's the point, that this yeah. would
3: be a geometry by which uh, there could be European collaboration Uh, on on research and innovation without all of the political and legal freight that comes with the framework program. I'm not, I I, I hope, you know, I don't think we're going to get to a situation where we have 20 CERNs blossoming all around Europe, but I do think we're going to have five or six new ones, and I bet you anything Mm -hmm. that at least two of them, new ones, are going to be in the life science area.
6: Mm -hmm. Requires that we think much more carefully about what our long term strategy would be for international development. You
0: know? Yeah. And thinking from a position of strength.
6: Strength, of course. If, if we all behave
0: rationally. Um, yeah. I, I, would, I would like to go back to divergence. Now, remember, I'm re- representing the person on the street. Um, uh, um, and perhaps I could even pretend to be a Brexiteer. Um, <laughs> would the uk in in you know given david i'm going to direct this to you first given the uk's lead in life sciences um is this perhaps an opportunity um for the uk um to diverge in terms of regulation from the eu um and gain a competitive advantage you know uh, ex, you know, human experiments on people, uh, <laughs> or, or, so I'm, that's an extreme, I mean, is there, is there something to be gained from, from leaving the restrictions of the research environment in, in, in Europe?
2: Well, this is what I was, I was pointing out at the beginning. I, 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 do, I worry that there are, well, I, I, I think we all know that there are those voices in the United Kingdom that see the United Kingdom going down that route which is why I think it is so very important for EU27 to identify very clearly not only what its own interests are, but to have a very clear appreciation of what the UK wants, because the UK may well be tempted to go in a different direction from from the rest of of the European continent, in which case we'd all be very well advised as EU27 to take that very carefully. Can I just come back to an earlier point as well that we've just been talking about, you mentioned Macron, um, and, and the idea of the new geomet- geometrics of, of, of new geometries um, going forward. And I think this is, it's interesting how this conversation goes in that direction. And it's not only Macron, it's also Schultz in Germany um, and it's last week's Euro- European Monetary Fund proposal. Um, and ultimately, we're talking about what does Europe look like a decade from now. And we may well be talking about a central core and an outer rim of, let's call them, neighbourhood countries, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> But do is that the kind of Europe that we want um, it 's it's the kind of Europe which until now um, is, is not one which not been one which has been particularly attractive here in Brussels uh, until now, the orthodoxy has been everyone goes at the same speed and we pull everybody along. Um, I do think that the next couple of decades are going to be about um, about economic and monetary union much, much more than in the last couple of decades they were about the single market. And in that new context of economic and monetary union, where does life sciences fit and what is fit into that new geometry as well uh, that, that we're talking about? This raises lots of bigger questions about the nature of Europe as well, or about, as well as about the nature of R&D, I'm afraid. And so coming back to your man in the street or your person in the street, um, the final point I'll make now is if your person in the street happens to be living in the United Kingdom, that's the discussion they've never had. Whereas in the rest of Europe, we might probably, in parts of Europe anyway, we could happily have that conversation about the future of our continent. Mm. You can't have that conversation with hardly anyone in the United Kingdom outside of a university. And this is the problem, Um, which is why the referendum campaign was such a tragedy, because it wasn't about the last couple of years. It was about 45 years of neglect. And that that's where the British political class uh, need need to see their, their their responsibility
0: okay with one eye on the clock, I am going to open up to our distinguished audience there um, I'm, I've, I've read some of the questions um, that are posed there there's a very <coughs> distinct feeling um, uh, from people who work in universities in the uk that they're always be, that they're already being disadvantaged and I'd like I think it's Martin, isn't it, from UCL, Michael from UCL, to, to to elaborate that for us.
7: speak? Oh,
0: there's a microphone.
7: Okay, so, um, so since the uh, referendum took place in the UK, I think there's been a distinct um, uh, change in the number of PI, of researchers wanting to lead proposals as coordinator in the UK. Mm. Um, and that's understandable. Um, for us at UCL, we've seen a radical, a significant drop in, in these numbers. Although participations in other areas are up, the, where um, UCL, I guess the UK should be taking, have in the past taken a leadership role. Uh, this has gone down massively, particularly for us at UCL in areas of biomedical research and cl- clinical trial-based projects. My worry is, um, and I, I, I'm not. I, guess we're not going to probably be able to get an answer around this uh, assurance question is that since Friday's developments um, and their pretty much their commitment that the UK can still participate um, up until the end of H2020, there's still a risk around leadership um, and I th- my worry uh, from an institutional perspective and also from a UK perspective is you know we encourage people now to participate uh, and, and p- effectively push them. Promote and positively encourage them to lead pro- pro- projects in areas that they've led on for three in years previously, uh, as I said, like in biomedical research, but then um, that these projects are seen by, by the evaluation systems and structures of the EU as too high risk. Because when we're looking at projects, uh, particularly in, in certain areas like security and health, um, we are looking at these projects as investments, long-term investments, And if the UK is likely to be outside of the regulatory environment, then how can we
0: potentially lead in these areas? Christian, you'd like to answer, I think.
5: Right. Um, At least what I took from the joint report from last Friday between the EU and the UK is that, after all, now this period of uncertainty has finally ended. Because, as you rightly said, there was was a very quick initial... um, announcement from the UK government after the referendum that all projects on the horizon will stay safe um, until the day of the Brexit comes into effect, so until March 2019. But that, of course, left open the period between March 2019 and the end of Horizon 2020. Uh, And for that two years period, everyone knew that, let's say, building consortia starts already now or over the last couple of months. So, so people thought, okay, who would be a good, reliable partner in projects that will start after March 2019? And I understand that so far, for that part, UK was not, a, let's say, a preferable partner because you never knew what would happen. Now, with the agreement of last Friday, I, read, I, I understand the agreement that way that nothing uh, will hinder the UK partners to stay in these projects or get into these projects because all the rules mm-hmm. will be accepted no matter how long the project will run and if they run 10 years all the rules that are agreed at a certain point in time under the regime of horizon Adventure, will be respected so that's at least how I see it so I don't see that, that I would say that probably after that let's say period of uncertainty now uh, in many cases, uh, you will rebound and become again a very important partner in coordinating projects and also for the for the uh, uh, PIs and, and in whatever areas you are very strong. That's my, my perception. Martin,
4: yeah, again a bit from my own uh, perspective because we went to a, not a similar situation, but also we had this big drop in participation. I think a lot of, of lot. A lot of this has to do also with perception. You know. uh, there might be papers out there saying that uh, the UK is an equal partner um, in Horizon 2020, uh, even though the Brexit discussions are in course, but as long as people on the ground do not, do not feel, feel that or do not understand that or they perceive, perceive that the UK is at risk, you will, still, you will always have this drop in participation. So what I would recommend you to do is to motivate researchers to still participate, to communicate with their peers, to let networks, to just LERU and others, but also to still take the leadership, still try to coordinate projects, because by taking the leadership, you, you show confidence towards the community, and uh, this is what we did, and um, I think this helped a lot also to keep us uh, very well integrated, and it also did all this coordination uh, this multi-beneficial project in Horizon 2020.
6: Brian Hilda? So I think it's also important to note that these consortia are not just set up just for these particular calls up, up till the 2019. Very often, they, they actually also reflect a long-term networks uh, that have been established or that they're looking for. And so that's why the uncertainty may now have been solved for a couple of months, but there is still a big uncertainty what will happen after. And that mm. still jeopardizes this network formation Is in the longer term here. So I'm not so convinced that solving only this Mm -hmm. uncertainty for for all these limited time periods is Mm -hmm. enough here. You really need a long term perspective because these these networks are long term.
7: Yeah, can I just respond? So, my personal, like, my ideal situation response to this would be, and I guess this is perhaps a bit unrealistic, would be to get a clear communication from uh, the Commission. Uh, to its evaluation panels, to, to its system, saying that this is still, bit, you know, um, and, and I know yeah. that it, there's a difference between yeah. it being taken, you know, this is business as you, and I would, I would like to, for me, wearing my UCL hat, that would be a, a big step in the right, forward for us, and I would then feel empowered, at least a little bit more, to then be able to encourage the people who should be leading these projects to actually step up and then take a leadership role.
0: And
3: also yeah, the, the, the I, I absolutely agree that there should be clarity from the Commission, and your assumption about what this <coughs> agreement means is rational, but, it, I, mean, I, but I'm, I think we need to see a statement uh, right. from DG Research or the Commissioner that, that says this explicitly, because until it's there on black and white, Again, I don't think you're going to have a university in Italy or, or in Poland thinking about it any differently well, than uh, but before. But he has already done that, eh, in fact, uh, Rich? Uh, yeah, uh, I know, that was a success.
1: Well, we now have this guarantee that up until the present, uh, <coughs> the end of the present multi-annual financial framework, everything is safe on Erasmus, on, on Horizon 2020. And the Commissioner has said explicitly, be it a week or two weeks ago already, uh, we are, at the end of the day, we are going to have a solution for FP9 and the UK. And of course, uh, he cannot promise more than than just saying that, but it's clear that from the side of the EC, they're going to do everything, I think, that uh, brings, at least, within a number of uh, uh, caveats, uh, the UK on board. So I, I would say that, and that would be the... A suggestion that I would do to to Michael, eh? and and we know very well the situation at UCL, of course, because they are one of our members, we just continue with what we have been doing. We we say business as usual, certainly up until the beginning of 2021, when the first phase of the transition period is going to end, eh? who knows how many more phases of the transition period that we are going to get eh? before the trade agreement is there, so perhaps even longer. So certainly for the next uh, four years, I would say, there is, a, there is no issue anymore there. And, and, and there should be a kind of uh, hope to, to use that work again uh, that we will manage at the end of the day and find a solution for the UK and research and innovation. So
0: I mean, can should I just place one, one i, n- I mean? No, I, I'm, I'm going to respond. Okay. <laughs> so, and... and, and that, that's been two questions. So I mean, I you know surely the rational response, whether you know even even if God him or herself came down and gave an assurance that that you know that that the EU would be sticking to its own rules, which of course it does, um, you know I would still see working with a UK partner as a risk. Um, and you know, I'd still see working with a Swiss partner as a risk. <laughs> <Thank> so, <you. laughs> so, so even so <laughs> <he laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of statements. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, so even, even if one behaves a legal <laughs> reality. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but this is, but, that's, but that's acting rationally. <laughs> you know, the, the markets move on this kind of thing, right? And 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 perhaps it doesn't seem rational, but that's what ordinary people do. And, and, and I'm afraid even with assurances. The insurance insurance. Insurance. There's we even have more we, <laughs> we have ten more minutes, and there there is one important topic that I think we have to look at um, that's really important, and, and that is what happens if there is no deal. Remembering this week's uh, this week's uh, Brexit caveat, nothing's agreed until everything is agreed, and we've all and, and between us, we've already agreed that there's too much to agree, even in this sector without looking at other sectors. Um, what what kind of you know what should we look for? What can be done? What can be salvaged? Um, in a no deal situation, I'd, I'd, I'd like to um, um, bring in another member of the audience here. So, Gabby Lombardo, you had two points to make: one about UK publishers, and the other about. Um, um, uh, uh,
2: yeah, yeah, please. Um, yeah, um, I've been working at the London School of Economics for ten years, and I'm still in touch with the UK higher education sector. I know for sure. They are saving money under the carpet to make sure that the government will keep pace with the commitment of the rise of the European money. Some institutions got 30% of their research income from EU funding. And some of them are setting up a, a campus in Europe. Okay. Now my question, I've got two questions from two different perspectives. One question is, is it the best strategy for UK to set up a campus for Queen Mary in Paris and so on? And from the EU perspective, is there going to be a red line? Obviously, we know why they do it. They do it for recruitment of students, they do it for research cooperation. But is that the solution? So that's one question.
0: Kurt, you start. Well, well, it's,
1: it's, of course, a suggestion which has been made many times over the past year and a half now. Namely, UK based universities go and set up a hub in continental what Europe. Well, I I don't have any examples up until now of of, of many. (laughs) Well, I don't have so many examples of that up until now, certainly not of of the the Russell Group members with whom we are collaborating very intensively, of course. But, But it's clear that this is not a problem as such, I would say. If you create an institution in continental Europe which is complying with the domestic national rules of the game and with the EU rules of the game, then I don't see what is the problem. Right? And then, of course, uh, you will need some critical mass at this continental campus uh, that you are looking at. But if that is possible legally, then I don't see any problem. Right? We see nowadays, for example, that, that uh, let me give you the example of Australian universities, which are not benefiting from Horizon 2020 money, have to be put into the pot by the Australian government. But you see Australian universities putting up campuses in other parts of Asia, in countries where they still can benefit from uh, Horizon 2020 funding if they team up with, uh, of course, uh, the necessary partners here. And so such constructions are, in fact, already existing today. So I remember very well that uh, in the past, uh, we said, uh, within LERU, we have to create a kind of LERU hub for ERC grantees coming from outside Europe, at first we could apply that hub for Switzerland <laughs> <laughs> and secondly now we could use that hub for for the UK of course so so as long as you are in compliance with the domestic legal framework and with the EU legal framework if it comes down to applications uh, and things like that then i don't see any problem
3: I- if I can, one, one, I have to laugh on, on this point.
1: I mean, Kurt, there are many negotiations that have been going on. And yeah, I know yeah, they're but, not concluded. But how many of them have nobody, led You know, so,
3: but first of all, it's, it's kind of amusing it's, to have a British university talk about opening satellite campuses all around Europe. It's kind of like treating the continent of Europe as if it was the Middle East and, you know, they're going to put a <laughs> campus in Doha or something. I mean, it, it, it speaks to the political mindset in London. But but the second point is realistic that um, whether they can do that depends entirely on how the commission ends up ruling on, and then what can they do for participation in framework. I mean, it, it, it could be that the commission just says, okay, that's fine. If, if you've got a, you know, like a company, if you've got an operation in Paris, you yep. University yep. of Manchester, yep. uh, and you, the work is there, fine, okay,
1: then we'll pay for it. It would be more but worrying if the EC would do the opposite, namely organize the legal framework in such a way that this would not be possible. Yeah. Yeah. Create a discrimination for the academic but it, sector. It is still a political which, question. Which which they have allowed for decades now for so yeah. the commercial sector. But so and
3: until that yeah. question is yeah. really firmly but, answered. But for university we won't see the But for experience. university
1: it's much more an issue of identity, of mission, of of policy to say I don't see Oxford or Cambridge now coming to Brussels yeah. and set up a hub here and say this is also Oxford or Cambridge. They never have <laughs> done that in the past in Asia or wherever on this planet. So I don't see them doing that now either. So. Okay.
0: Yeah. Ryan Hilda, I want to ask you, um, because I know your work has looked at the connections that have built up between the UK and Europe in terms, of, uh, in terms of research connections. Are all these connections going to become inoperable if there is no deal? Or will some of them continue to exist? Will, will, will we find ways around them?
6: Sure, because scientists will always find their networks in terms of where the most excellent partners are to collaborate with, uh, irrespective of whether that's FP-funded uh, mm-hmm. or not. And we do see that the, the collaborations FP-funded are very similar in terms of it, whom we are collaborating with as the ones that are not funded uh, here. So there's lots of, of unfunded collaboration taking place uh, anyway that will not uh, disappear. But we also, at the same time, we have to admit that scientists always also direct their behavior in terms of where it's easier to find funding for. So in that respect, there will be nevertheless some kind of distortion depending on where uh, it's most, what kind of collaboration is most easily uh, funded. But I think it's not just only a matter of funding, it's also a matter of how easy is it to collaborate, and that's why also other things like the mobility of of people visiting each other's labs and stuff like that, getting visa for, for uh, um, uh, for your researchers to visit other labs, that's also very important. And that's why we really should also look beyond just access to funding, it's also the, the other dimensions of, of the European single uh, market and, and the mobility of people is very important to sustain uh, to sustain collaborative uh, efforts as well. And this holds for universities but I think it also holds for companies uh, as well here. So if you want to operate across different labs and so how easy is it to have your researchers moving between these labs, it's very important to know what are really stable uh, relationships that you should really think about beyond just Access to funding, cherry picking here is
5: also about mm. the other parts of. The world. Yeah. Christian? Um, coming back to your no deal scenario, and that links up also with the question here about institutional strategies. Um, I think if we take the framework program out of the game, because that is basically the consequence of a no deal yeah. no association mm-hmm. to the framework program, no deal, not part of a bigger pack- package. So then you have to reactivate. Uh, Strategies that have been replaced by the framework program over the last 20 years or 30 years. So, be it bilateral agreements between the UK and individual member states. Mm -hmm. We in Austria have one that simply expired because it was useless in in, in terms of the framework program. So, now we have to go back and look at it and see how can, on an institutional basis, of course, to build on the networks that you have. I mean, as you said, all these networks exist, and they do not completely depend on the framework program. So you can build on that. You can come back to your uh, uh, proposal Richard to say, okay, perhaps we can do something more on an intergovernmental level and and work together along this a la carte idea of Macron. So of course, there are even under a no-deal <coughs> scenario, options where we can also continue to collaborate between the UK and, and Europe, but of course, this is by far let's say, not the first, second, or
0: third best option. Before our closing question, does anybody else want to comment on
4: that? With it, yeah. will, it, will it all end yeah. yeah. Something that we didn't touch, I think I had a chat with uh, one of uh, my colleagues from the Max Planck Society at lunch, and we discussed the, the, the importance of research infrastructures. Mm-hmm. I think the UK hosts you know, also formula research infrastructures. And we have access to those as, um, as EU member states or associated states to the framework program because of the framework program. And if you have a no deal uh, from one day to another, uh, we will lose access to research infrastructures. Also, UK scientists will lose access to our research infrastructures. And that's also a reason why, uh, from my perspective, a no deal scenario is not possible at all because those research infrastructures are so essential for, uh, you know, for, for the scientific collaboration, but also you know, for collaboration with industry, et cetera. So I think this is an aspect of the debate that we haven't touched uh, uh, today.
2: Yeah, and just going back to Gabby's point, yeah. I think an interesting question is, actually, why is it taking the universities so long to establish hubs on the mainland of Europe? Um, it, as far as I can see from the outside of academia, um, it's not happening very quickly, especially if you look at some British universities which now have probably 50% of students are EU students. You'd have thought they'd have actually moved more quickly in that direction. Um, and also... Final point, I think also there's a question about can all universities re- respond in that way? And I think the answer is probably no, they can't. So it does tend to divide the rich from the poor in terms of the, the, the university sector. And that's a concern I would have about this transition to, to the mainland of Europe. But clearly it's a rational response. I, I think it's not, as quite, not anywhere near as black and white as, as, as you portrayed it. I think it's a reasonable thing to do, uh, particularly Following the the collaborations and the working together of the last decades, the the interlinkages between universities in Europe are now so well-established. It's the obvious thing to do, is to establish campuses on the mainland of Europe.
0: Okay. So we have one minute left and uh, a member of the audience has tweeted a question which is great he's going to make sure that the question is asked um, but I'm going to ask it on his behalf so Vincent Clay asks and I think this is a key question if you' if you're going to get uh, uh, if you're going to get um, some traction on the needs of uh, of this negotiation with the person in the street um, how would you pitch intensive UK EU R&I collaboration? as a positive story in the Daily Mail. <laughs> first of all, you all know what the Daily Mail is. Right? Please don't ask me to describe it, because children might be watching Kurt. Uh,
1: the question is, of course, if you have to bother about the Daily Mail. But uh Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, but it's in the, first time, in the first place also, and I come back to what was said here, a complete lack of political leadership in not explaining what is at stake what is the situation how to explain to lead, uh, readers of the daily mail eh? it's clear that the best way to convince people of the success of this collaboration is to come up with concrete cases diseases which are cured uh, medical problems uh, in, in other sectors which are which are tackled uh, environmental problems which are saved solved uh, climate energy issues come to the very concrete level of how UK-EU collaboration has led to breakthroughs to solutions on all those societal challenges that we have and how the man in the street has benefited from that. And the man in the street, I would say, is
2: the reader of, of the Daily Mail.
0: David, are there yeah. such cases?
2: Know, knowing the Daily Mail as well as I do, I'd be even simpler. Um, even that wouldn't work. And the, it's a simple expression. No country is an island. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you say. Wait,
1: the Unless your ambition is to become the Macau, just yes, yes. below the EU border. Right? So, uh, yes. If that is so your, your ambition, that, then it's good yeah. to be mine
0: Richard, how would you... Re- you Right to the daily mail You have to make it jingoistic. You, you have to.
3: You you have to say uh, this is a world-beating area for Britain uh, research, and we have great success in this field. And we have to do things so that we're still beating all the foreigners.
1: <laughs>
4: Martin. Yeah. yeah. I will go back maybe to what Kurt said about you know uh, the things that we can not do alone. You know, speaking about rare diseases, climate change. Uh, but also, speaking about the uh, jobs and growth, uh, our automotive industry, for example, we need to collaborate with, uh, with the EU. We need to have access to this uh, internal market, otherwise, we're not able to, s- to sell our cars uh, simply as that. Christian?
5: Well, I can only add a cynical answer here. <laughs> Daily Mail would lose a scapegoat if we if we just <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and Europe is not there anymore. They would yeah. turn yeah, against I, each other. Yeah.
0: That's that you you win my you win my support, Reinhilde. I would
6: tell them. Ask your daughters and sons and nephews and nieces uh, who went on Erasmus, uh, who had a scholarship by uh, There are plenty of those and what positive benefits they got out of this uh, year and that's builds really long term European minded people. And they all have that in their families.
0: Okay. I would like to thank the panel. It's been a fascinating conversation. We could have gone on for much longer, but I'm afraid we can't. I'd also like to pa- thank the audience. Thank you for your questions, even if we didn't get round to all of them. Um, and I look forward to your feedback um, afterwards on on, on on this particular mode of, uh, of, of having a conversation. Thanks to all of you. Thank you.